All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast. A podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my co-host is Robert and we're going to talk about 310 to Yuma today. We have a special guest, but before we introduce him, I just want to mention to everyone that our co-host and host are together, like physical. Yeah, baby, back again. Once upon a time, we were always hanging out. Then uh, the adult lives come in and step in, and we uh, get separated a bit. But, uh, yeah, I'm back here for a couple of weeks. I come up here and uh, record an episode. It's really cool. Yeah, so if anyone wants an easy way to find the one that we did in the flesh, that's actualanarchy.com slash 37. And uh, before we go uh, any further, let's introduce our guest. His name is Doug Gregory. He writes for us at the Actual Anarchy site under the uh, pseudonym, The Professional Asshole. There's a couple of articles up there that are really good. Uh, we've got one more that we're going to publish around the time that this art or this episode gets published, which will be this Sunday. And um, how you doing, Doug? We've been uh, chatting for a few minutes beforehand, but uh, say hi to the audience. Howdy. No, I'm, I'm doing real good. Thanks for asking. So. Well, very good. So this was a movie that I believe you had suggested. So is there any reason why this one stood out to you as one that you wanted to do for this kind of show? I, I guess the reason is because one of the major issues I see in society, not just as a, as a strict libertarian, but I guess just as a, as a working guy, you know, as a husband, as a father, most, most fathers are portrayed in media as these, you know, bumbling, boorish kind of, you know, useless jerks. I mean, you know, whether you look at, uh, at Al Bundy or you look at uh, Hal from Malcolm in the Middle, any sitcom dad, they're, they're idiots. I mean, they're idiots, and it's only right that their kids smack them around and tell them, like, you know, Dad, don't be such an idiot. You know, you don't know how to handle the finances. You know, I know how to handle the finances. And you're, you're like, you, barely, you barely provide as, like, a data entry clerk at a, you know, low-level company or something like that. Like, they're idiots. They're they're useless boobs and they're not, you know, they're not courageous. They're not helpful. They're not, they don't know anything about their kids. Thank God that the, you know, the wife bosses them around constantly. Otherwise, you know, they'd actually make the mistake of making a decision on, a, on an occasion. And this, um, I think this movie, I notice it, I mean, obviously Dan is, you know, the, the main character played by Christian Bale starts off in this really low down position. I mean, he's about to lose his farm, his entire livelihood, his family really, is desperate for for money and they're in serious trouble and so in a sense he's starting off like where the sitcom dad lives without the humor but then through his his moral courage his willingness to sacrifice for his family his persistence his endurance he pulls them out of that hole and actually becomes the hero that most fathers in society i think truly are where they you know they fight they go to a job they don't necessarily like every day for their kids and they fight for their kids and they make sure that their wife is as cared for as possible. And, you know, despite the way sitcoms usually portray dads, they're not these half men who are like sexually inadequate, but actually, you know, make sure that their wives 
that they do the dishes a couple times a week and make sure that their wife gets away whenever she can and really try to fight hard to make their family's lives pleasant as possible and as good as possible. And this is a sort of a, a real visceral tale of a father trying to show his son just because things aren't easy right now doesn't mean that I'm not going to take care of you and doesn't mean I'm not working hard to take care of you. I mean, it's every, everybody has a downside of luck. Every guy, I mean, life can kick the crap out of all of us. And yet Dan makes sure that his family is taken care of at the expense of his own spoiler alert life. Yeah. Spoilers all the time on this show. <laughs> For sure. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, that's a nice monologue and uh, you make a lot of good points and, and I do see a lot of that in the movie. So I think it is a good one to discuss. And I'll just, add to your comment with one brief statement that will sound very stupid, but I've noticed this too in all of these shows like King of Queens and even home improvement and things like that, that the guy is like a fumbling boob, but the wives are always pretty fit, pretty hot, you know, which is kind of bizarre. I'm always like, that doesn't add up. Like why would, why would this attractive woman want this guy? Uh, right. Especially how he's portrayed in, in the sitcom or in the movie. Yeah. And it's always because in the, in the end he pulls through on a clinch and he's, he's sweet or something. So 310 to Yuma, Google description. It's a 2007 crime film, drama film, two hours and two minutes long. 7.7 rating on IMDb with an 89% Rotten Tomatoes rating. So a lot of people liked it. Ebert gave it four out of four. And 91% of Google users really liked this. So this is a movie that was very popular and well-received, though the box office wasn't that significant, only at $70 million. Yeah, which I really was, I you know, displeasing, but unfortunately can't win them all. Yeah, yeah, indeed. In fact, that we'll get into that a little bit later, but that relates to our Larkin Rose experience that we did this last weekend. But here is the Google description. Outlaw Ben Wade, played by Russell Crowe, terrorizes 1800s Arizona, especially the Southern Railroad, until he is finally captured. Wade must be brought to trial, so Dan Evans, played by Christian Bale, the owner of a drought-stricken ranch, volunteers to escort him to the train. Along the trail, a grudging respect forms between the men, but danger looms at every turn, and the criminal's men... Are in pursuit. Nothing to complain about there. I just want to note that it's also this is a movie directed by James Mangold, who recently did the, the very popular and well done Logan movie, which is also another you could call a Western movie. Yeah, no, I really love Mangold's style. He really he he knocks him out of the park consistently. Yeah, we did a, a a Logan episode. I forget what number it was. I should have had that up in front of me, but that was with Ryan Jones, the Afro Libertarian, and that was a good one. Nice, yeah, it was. Yeah, I really did love uh, Logan, you know, not that we'll discuss it too much, but it's one of only like, say, a handful of movies that has all three of the basic hero narratives as its uh, as its structure, which is great. Yeah, I think I think I saw a post by you where you mentioned that about Logan, maybe Dark Knight um, Rises. And yeah, uh, technically, it's all three have it. Well, no, it really focuses more on the second two. But yeah. Um, and, you know, just so that I'll describe the for your audience what I'm talking about, it's there are three basic hero narratives. It's hero defeats world, world defeats hero, and hero saves world, usually through dying. And Logan has all three because uh, Logan, he saves the world by saving the new generation of mutants. The world defeats him by destroying his, his aging body. I mean, he's, he's old and, and broken down, and it's really... He's, he's getting his he's getting his butt whooped on a regular basis. And then he eventually dies in order to save the world and create uh, a new world that has a possibility for hope. So it has all three of the basic hero narratives involved. And, um, you know, 310 to Yuma actually has um, has two of them, which is which is great. He doesn't Dan Evans doesn't save the world, 
but he does defeat the world, meaning evil. But he's also he's also conquered by the world, and that the world has even from the beginning defeated him, uh, and he's he's downtrodden and can't can't make a living. So um, he doesn't fundamentally alter the world or its perception, although he does for his son. So it may even it could even be that that three ten to Yuma could you could make an argument that it has all three of the hero narratives. Yeah, I could see that like on the personal individual level, he's realizing or, or trying to achieve justice just in his little corner of the world, his own little sphere, just to show his son that he's not this worthless one legged guy. Right. Yeah, and we should, you know, of course mention that to the audience that, you know, we were talking before the uh, show about this craziness in Charlottesville and not shying away from controversy here. This movie has a lot to do with the history of America right after the Civil War. Um, because Dan is a Civil War veteran who lost his leg uh, very ingloriously um, to friendly fire from his own sniper regiment, his own Massachusetts sniper regiment. And because of this, you know, he's a, he's a rancher with one leg. I mean, how productive could you possibly be? He has to strap on this fake foot every morning. And it, you know, it's obviously very difficult for everybody. He's much more dependent on the labor of his children than he might otherwise be. You know, and his, his wife has to make up for things that she wouldn't otherwise, which is you know commented on by Ben Wade, that's Russell Crowe's character, that you have to work your wife too hard, you know, so she's skinny and she doesn't, you know, she's not quite as, as plump as most guys like might like her kind of thing. So very unfortunate for him. He's just really in a bad situation. Um, but, you know, he, he makes the best of it. I mean, he works twice as hard to make the best of things for his family, even though he's frankly failing. Yeah, in no small part due to the debt he has with Hollister, which we were talking about before. But let's set the scene. What is the, the opening? Do we have some, some good notes to kind of start diving into some scenes here? Well, the opening is just Christian Bale's barn getting set on fire by Hollander's men, who are doing it as a, a threat, a reminder to get him to pay. It seems right. to be counterproductive if they actually have a debt to Hollander to make the, his ranch less productive. Right. Well, and destroy whatever the value of the barn may have had. I mean, doesn't that, in effect, wipe out a commiserate portion of the debt? <laughs> well, except that Hollander intended to sell his land to the railroad, which was making its way through the area, or about to, right? Right, yeah. And there's a new book based on a manuscript from Murray Rothbard about the progressive area and the railroads, and there's also a series of lectures, which I'll post in our show notes below, but you get a whole history of how the railroads were making their way west and how much the government was involved in intervening and basically trying to shield all of these players from the market forces. And they ended up, for the most part, failing, except for, of course, the uh, Great Northern Railroad by James J. Hill. Yeah, no, I, I think I've read similar things in uh, Bert Folsom's book, How Capitalism Saved America, or the, the um, myth of the robber baron, sorry. So, But, uh, yeah, and then, you know, after, after this... Uh, barn burning we get introduced to uh ben wade who is a i guess we see him as this as this thoughtful criminal the the perhaps a, a sentimental criminal where the first thing we see him doing is sketching out um what looks like a, a desert some sort of a desert bird uh resting on a thorn branch and you know while he's waiting to rob a um a bank or a, i guess a bank coach with a with his entire gang which includes a sniper a few shotgun wielders and you know, against these uh, Pinkerton agents who are trying to defend the coach. And throughout the movie, we get this consistent line about Ben Wade, that he is apparently more thoughtful than your average murderer, you know, he, because he has this really strange scene later with, I think it's Vanessa Shaw as a, uh, who's playing a, a barmaid 
Oh yeah, Vanessa Shaw. Um, you know, where he, he basically just says, you know, I, I normally like girls with uh, green eyes. She's like, oh well, yours are blue. Eh, okay. Well, I, I normally like guys that are a little plumper than you. Oh, you're not very plump, kind of skinny. Oh, that's all right. Um, you, you, you look. I mean, you could be pretty enough, right? Oh, you're, you're just sort of average looking. All right. Well, you know, still, I prefer if you come to bed with me. And she like goes with him. You know, so, but somehow this he puts it in a in a way that's actually poetic enough that you might be sort of confused as to how it worked, and yet it did. So I guess apparently, you know, he's more thoughtful and and poetic than your average murderer. But you know, hey, whatever, right? I mean, you know, we got the same thing with um, the public school system. You know, indoctrinate your kids, but hey, it's free. Yeah, send them to babysitting. I mean, you're already paying for it. Right. Yeah, Crow's definitely set up as this. Ben Wade is definitely set up as a sympathetic character. At least it seemed to be for me. Did he? Did he seem that way for you, Daniel? In a way, he was a bit of a Renaissance man. Like you could tell that he was very worldly and and philosophical in a way, but also a, an evil streak within him. Like he was very nihilistic in his approach. Like it's might makes right. If, if I can get away with it, it's okay. Uh, I make my own rules. I make my own luck. Uh, yeah. Other people's lives are, are insignificant and unimportant, even members of his own gang, as exhibited at the end. Spoilers, of course. Well, in the beginning, at the beginning, there was after during the stagecoach robbery, there was one gang member who was sloppy, mm-hmm. and Ben Wade justified his murder of that guy as saying that he put the whole gang at risk by not killing one of the Pinkerton men. Right, yeah. not realizing that that Pinkerton man was still alive inside of their leftover stagecoach. Uh, hey, Doug, um, every time you move your computer, it's really loud on our side. Apologies. Oh, no problem. If you can find a, a good spot for it, um, that'd probably help. Okay. All right. And scene. All right. We're back. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like he's almost got a code that he lives by. It's kind of a famous thing where there's some gang member or a leader of a gang in a movie, and they always seem to operate under some sort of code. And, uh, yeah, Ben Wade is no different. He's, he's smarter than everybody else. He's quicker and faster than everybody else. And um, he has a string of successful robberies, and that's what endears him to apparently his gang. We're not really left much more. What What's the, his second in command's name? Charlie Prince. And he's kind of the, the lieutenant, you know, like the, the strong arm of the, uh, of the gang. You know, he's, he's the weapon. He, he has basically no qualms about doing anything. And he has this blind devotion to Ben Wade that they allude to and say, you know, he's done so much for us. How can you even think about not springing him from jail or, or whatever? And they never make it clear in the movie what it is exactly that Ben Wade has done. But uh, Prince, who's played by Ben Foster, is um, he's got this crazy wild-eyed look the whole movie. And he just has this blind devotion to, to Wade and will do anything for him. Yeah, I think they seem to suggest that there might be like some like undercurrent of homosexual attraction or something like that because they keep referring to Charlie Prince as Princess. There, yeah, he seems to be like he seems to have this extremely romantic notion of Ben Wade, but I think it's just it's a very subtle sort of a thing. It's not something they make they they don't I don't know they they don't they don't make it uh, obvious in any way. But yeah, they they make a few they make a few jokes about him possibly being you know gay. Of course, using 1870s language. So I'm not sure. Just he's clearly he's uh he's not he's not portrayed as a as a normal straightforward killer. He's sort of a he's got he's got some sort of a reason that has to do with his loyalty to Ben Wade that is not reciprocated. Uh, oh, so it's sort of like a, an unrequited love thing. Like he's trying to prove to Ben Wade how much he loves him. Yeah, he's maybe going to do anything for him to get his approval. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to plumb the depths of it or anything like that, but 
you know, it just seemed to me like they were the, the, well, the unrequited love and the fact that they call him Charlie Princess, I think like three or three times or something like that suggest to me they're trying to they're trying to make some sort of insinuation about his his relationship with uh, Ben Wade that it's not it's not typical cowboy stuff it's whatever and this is right around the time of Brokeback Mountain right so maybe you know yeah maybe maybe, maybe, I guess Brokeback Mountain came out in what 2005 or something like that <laughs> no so uh, and and Prince does wear this kind of unique shirt that looks almost like a corset type thing and he does have a bit of a flair to him yeah He's like a, he's a ponce or whatever you know, like what the yeah. British would call a ponce. He's some, somewhere between a fop and a, a whatever you know, whatever slang you want to use to describe. You, you know, know, his name is Charlie Prince. He kind of dresses like Prince. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got like this. Yeah, he's got a, a a white leather. He's got this white leather. I guess it's a ranching coat or something like that. But it, it's supposed to protect you from the the sort of high plains desert winds, but. Most guys would just wear a tarp or, you know, burlap sack on them or something like that. Yeah, like the old Clint Eastwood style. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's got something that's clearly much more expensive and a little more pristine. Yeah, so getting back to what happens in the movie. Um, so Crow's gang, they are robbing the stagecoach. And we're not really – are we left to understand that it's a, a banker stagecoach or – Yeah. Well, sure? no, I think, it was, I think it was for the railroad. The railroad was transporting money – but I don't, I don't know if they ever actually say what the money was for, just that it was a significant amount. Okay. Well, it seemed like they were doing railroad construction in the area. Yeah, I mean, so there was uh, all the Chinese labor, like dynamiting and building tracks. So I'm sure that there was money needed for things like that. Right. And the more that Wade stole, the more they had to try to get in there, right? Because any money he took would be sort of removed from the pool of the circulation, except for his bar tabs. Right. right. So, so Bale ends up using, or I'm sorry, Crow ends up driving Bale's cattle into the path of the coach, which ultimately sends it crashing and allows them to get the money. And then for some reason, Bale and his sons are just kind of like clueless spectators of this whole event, just kind of sauntering up there and checking it out. And then um, Crow notices them, confronts them, takes their horses, says he'll leave them on the road to Bisbee. And then um, later on, Bale confronts Crow in the bar and kind of demands payment for recompense, I guess, for the two cattle that were killed in the crash, and then his labor for the day and the labor of his sons for the day. And Crow's like, yeah, here you go. Sorry, man. Didn't mean to uh, inconvenience you, sort of. Yeah, and then Bale, like, sort of double-crosses him because he sees that the guys are about to Close in him. on him. Yeah. He's like, well, now I need even more money. Like, he continues the negotiation. It's sort of like the hostage negotiation. Keep him on the phone longer. Yeah, give me some more money just for whatever because yeah, I want it. We're completing the trace. Right. But it seems like Crow is following his code again. And like, he doesn't want to inconvenience like the poor rancher guy who's just struggling to get by. Yeah. He's not a party to this, but the big, the big wealthy railroad, he's somehow like morally against. Did you get that sense? Or yeah. Is he just, or is he just a, just a killer and he's an opportunist and he sees the money and he's going to take it. He, he seems to have enough of a code that he doesn't want to inconvenience anybody who seems I'd probably seem weaker than himself. Right. So he doesn't, he doesn't hurt women. He doesn't hurt children. He doesn't hurt one legged cripples. Right. But, um, and he, he gets really upset when, uh, Peter Fonda's character talks about his own mother in a, in a less than sparkling way later, he, he kills him for it. And, you know, we find out later down the line that his own mother, left him at a train station when he was a boy and went back east because I guess living out west was too difficult for a single mother and son. So she went out east and left him there and he you know, had to survive since he was 
you know, a young boy on his own. And you think that that would kind of harden him to the position of situations, but I guess, you know, maybe it made him soft. Maybe it made him think, you know, yeah, I had to grow up in this rough, difficult environment, but rough, difficult environments make for tragedies. And I don't want to cause anybody else tragedies, but people who've got the money, yeah, they can, they can survive having a few dollars pilfered from them. Yeah, maybe he was the, the Rothbardian type of the day where he realized that a lot of that money was ill-gotten through protectionist schemes in collusion with government. And he was like, well, they're not legitimate owners of that property anyway, so why not expropriate? I guarantee that was what was going through his head. Yeah. Guarantee. Yeah. Especially as he murdered the guards as he was getting to that money. <laughs> exactly what he was thinking. Yeah. Now, um, right as they're in the, the saloon and Bale and Crow are basically talking and the posse or the marshals closing in on Crow and they capture him and Crow kind of just gives up, doesn't fight his way out. They discuss and they're talking and they decide that they need volunteers or that they need help in getting this man. They don't have enough men to safely get him to the railroad. And Bale offers up his services. So let's talk about why exactly he does that. He is in dire straits, like Douglas said at the beginning of the show. But why is that? He, he owes money to this man named Hollander who, who lives upstream from him. And he has, and Hollander, in an effort to get Bale to, what, would you say sell his land to Hollander or to forfeit his land to Hollander? He has dammed up this creek, which is providing water to, to Bale's land. Now, in today's law, or in Ancapistan, I think it's interesting to talk about whether Bale would be entitled to recompense or what somebody else does with essentially their own land if it affects you in a negative way. Do you, when he buys the land, when he initially buys the land, is he entitled to a certain amount of the water that flows through his property? I mean, barring like some sort of act of God, if it's somebody maliciously takes the water away from his property, is he entitled to any kind of recompense? What do you think there, Doug? Yeah, I mean, this is a legitimate uh, debate even among libertarians because I remember Walter Block, uh, specifically on the Tom Woods show, talking about ownership of um, of unique natural resources that don't have you know, they don't have divisible property ownership or something like that. So rivers being the most common, but, you know, the next one after that are coasts and, you know, perhaps um, oil reserves as they go many miles underground without necessarily, without necessarily having one, you know, one specific owner. We had this difficulty with what was called uh, seepage in the early days of um, oil extraction, where you know, technically speaking, if you just take your property and go straight down the earth to the center. You know, this um, oil is yours, but the problem is underneath you, it's like this big ocean of, of oil that's embedded within rock and it will seep out of the rock to a drilled hole. So are you stealing from somebody else's land if for some reason you do that? Well, it, it, becomes, a, it becomes a legitimately difficult answer. It's not like, you know, you know our, our mortgaged house and our little HOA where we have these very clear defined property borders that we know what's going on. It's, it's really something more akin to like, you know, sound or smell or something like that. You know, can you violate somebody's sense of smell? And, um, you know, the way Walter Block did it was to say, well, basically the, the property owners on, say, the Mississippi River would have a share in the Mississippi River Corporation, which would then be run like a market engine and therefore would be used to the best possible extent. Another way I've heard it to be done is somebody just purchases the whole river, whether it be a corporation as its own or perhaps an individual, and then sells the use of the river to other persons. I guess 
Walter Block also mentioned in the, the circumstance of, like, say, lakes or things like that, that one entity or series of entities has to buy uh, the lake and then allow its sublease to tenants or persons who might wish to use it. And, and this is um, Lake Tahoe has this difficulty because, of course, people want to get out on Lake Tahoe and water ski, but the residents don't want boat engine noise 24-7. So how do you figure that out? Well, as it is currently, we've basically just assumed that large natural resources like that belong to one entity corporation called the U.S. government. And then the U.S. government figures it out. You know, the U.S. government's a monopoly and it doesn't, so it doesn't have regular competitive things. Nobody can come in and say, well, you're not managing the, U- the Mississippi River very well, so this board's going to get transferred out and a new board's going to come in. Um, as it is, that's actually about how the Panama Canal is uh, measured. And I've actually had some investments and some business in Panama. So I, I researched on how the uh, Panama Canal was governed. And technically speaking, the Panama Canal is a private corporation that rents its land from the Panamanian government, but otherwise has a classical board of directors that manage it and continue to make a profit. So, and because of that, it's managed very well. They've just finished having uh, a massive expansion of it. So the the new um, super new Panamax ships were, were even larger than they had been before. So, you know, that might be a real world model that could be implemented over, say, the next 20 years on a variety of uh, large natural resources with no definitive ownership. Okay. Have you, you're a bit of a, a land investor. Yeah. Land bear. I have, yeah, I have some uh, real estate investments. Have you ever run across anything like this where there's some water rights? Not in my, because I'm just investing in like HOAs in, you know, basic subdivision homes in the Atlanta area. But there have been circumstances in some of my friends' POA divisions up in the North Georgia mountains where they're carving public use, well, not public use roads, but community use roads into the side of mountains or having water, uh, you know, have a creek that feeds into the Chattanooga River or something like that will be, um, you know, running through their property and they have to, they're restricted on what they can do with it because that's considered a watershed or something like that. So I have a little, I have a little knowledge through friends of it, but not my own property, thank goodness. And the way that usually works is, is basically um, if somebody has a creek running through their uh, river that's a part of the Chattanooga watershed, I'm sorry, Ch- Chattahoochee, ch- part of the Chattahoochee watershed, um, the basic issue, and you know, Georgia actually has to fight with the state of Tennessee over this issue because the Chattahoochee technically starts up in the North Georgia mountains and goes through Tennessee and then comes back down to Atlanta. So for a long time, the two states have been fighting over who gets the rights to use the water because the Chattahoochee starts in Georgia, but it goes through Tennessee and then comes back down to Atlanta. So who gets the uh, who gets the water use rights? And um, basically, Tennessee kind of rents it from Georgia is really the, the way things have, have worked out. And so they're allowed to take a certain amount of the water, which they've determined on an average year over year basis. It, it's going to rain within a certain predictable amount and you're allowed to take this amount of gallons of water every year and then the remainder goes to Atlanta. So it, it ended up turning into a um, sort of a, a legal battle that we have to fight over every couple of years about who has the right to um, you know, the water. And, and there's no perfect solution because on dry years, you know, then Tennessee's getting way more than it, it should. And, you know, on wet years, they're not making up for the dry years. They're not paying us back or anything. But you know, ultimately it's um, – there's there's not um, there's not a, and there's also a difficulty because there's not enough um, conservation going on as well, which is what the formation of Lake Lanier was. Dam the Chatt- Chattahoochee River in order to make uh, enough water for a consistent consistent water production. And almost every year we end up having going going dry these days because of Atlanta's extraordinary growth. We've gone from two to six million in the last 25 years. So there's a lot of pressure on 
a dam system that was built almost 40 years ago. So, Daniel, let me bring it back to the movie and ask you, do you think that Hollander violated Bale's water rights when he dammed up the creek on his own property? It sounds like, without knowing a whole lot about the situation per se, is that Evans had use of that water previously. Yeah, right. So he'd homesteaded it. Right. And then the man upstream decided as a way to fuck with Evan to dam it, try to drive him off of the land. So right. I think it clearly is a violation uh, with very limited information. Okay. Do you think he had some sort of, do you think Bale should have perhaps gone after him in a legal fashion because of this? I mean, I wouldn't have made it the same kind of movie, but. Yeah, I don't even know what kind of legal structure would have really been in place. I mean, that's the one thing that you sort of have to keep in mind is that these are not uh, in Kapistan. You know, these are still under the jurisdiction of a monopoly government and justice system. Well, you know how Hollywood loves to turn the West, the old West into the wild West, the lawless West, when in fact it was very rarely that. So this is again, not showing that they don't make great movies, of course, but, or maybe they do, but we don't get to see them. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that Bale or Evans would have had the right to correct that situation. And since it was threatening his livelihood and his life, I mean, he could have taken fairly drastic measures. I think force would have been justified in trying to solve that problem, especially when Hollister and his men come and burn his barn down. I mean, that's threatening their lives, you know, right. imminent harm. Very direct way. Yeah. So, you know, and he did have his, um, his rifle and he never used it. Yeah. In fact, his son wanted to shoot the fleeing men mm-hmm. and his father, Bale said, no, let's not do it that way. Yeah. In all likelihood, it would have resulted in their, their deaths. I mean, they were a bunch of Hollister men and just the two. Yeah. The two so, guys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a bloodbath. But. Yeah. No, I, I, um, I get where you're coming from. It seems, uh, it's a difficult question to answer, you know, because uh, even if for some reason somebody's um, violated your property, you know, is shooting them in the back acceptable when you have other alternatives available? Uh, I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm not going to, I suppose it depends on the, uh, I'd have to think about it a little more. I suppose it depends on circumstances where if you do have immediate recompense available to you or you have the ability to ask for somebody where it's actually reliable means of getting somebody to come out and help you. It might be illegitimate to shoot somebody in the back, but you know, then again, you know, they violated your property, they violated your, your, your rights to, um, to life and property, then, you know, theirs are all, their own are technically forfeit. So, yeah, I mean, once they start hostilities, they don't really have a, a say so much in how it gets solved. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I can tell you if, if I were stuck in that situation, I probably wouldn't shoot them in the back only because you know, Hollander is like this wealthy guy and he could probably conceivably bring more men. And obviously the point is to try to um, keep my own life and my own property to whatever extent I can, especially for my children. I'm guessing with another possibility might have been just that legal cost was going to be too expensive for Evans. So he wouldn't be able to, he would not be able to pursue Hollander in court effectively. Although that, that might not be a, maybe that's another problem to solve in Ancapistan or something like that. But um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, legal costs are certainly inflated in uh, government monopoly oh. land. Yeah. Terribly so. And time frames extended. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know how much you guys want to talk about the plot of the movie or if we just kind of focus on issues associated with the movie. I mean, I'd like to get your take on whether 
Bale was a pure moral actor in this movie, or if uh, Crow is just a pure scumbag or anything in between you guys want to talk about? You guys want to just go through the plots and scenes? Because it seems like there weren't a whole lot of um, nebulous moral scenes like was so-and-so justified in doing this at this point. It was clear for me, like, no or yes. So is there any point you guys want to hit on? Well, I, I noticed there was an evolution in the characters where Bale was initially standing up for quote-unquote justice, and he started realizing that the white hats were actually not much better than Wade. Like with Pinkerton, uh, the, what was his name? Uh, the Peter Fonda character. Yeah, yeah, and all the uh, the, the, the crimes that uh, Russell Crowe pointed out about that guy. Right, yeah, and, and they massacred women and children and said, well, they were they were resisting or causing a ruckus or something, so it was justified. And I think Bale started to see or realize that you know, they're really not that far apart. They're both using violence and justifying it in their own minds, just in slightly different ways. But the actions themselves are still pretty much equivalent. Yeah, the movie, it seems to be this relationship between Bale and Crow and how they see that they are far more alike than apart, I guess you could say, and how they at least respect each other. I mean, that's what ultimately the end comes down to is that Crow ultimately wants to see Bale succeed and become this hero to his son. And that's why he's going to get on that train. Yeah. But, you know, to back it up a little bit and Doug, I'll let you jump in in a second. It seemed like Ben Wade almost wanted to be caught. He mentions later in the film, he's already been to the Yuma prison twice before. And when he does get captured at the saloon, like he sneaks into town by having the sheriff posse go as a result of Charlie Prince telling him, oh, uh, the stagecoach got robbed, you know, go check it out. Ben Wade did it. So they get all the posse out of town so that Ben Wade can go to the bar and sleep with that woman. And then he sticks around. Yeah. Did any of you guys have an issue with Russell Crowe not having any power over his gang like ever? It seemed like especially once he's sitting there in that hotel and his gang shows up and he sits on that little windowsill and he's talking to his Charlie. He seems like he could have at any point in time said, why don't you guys stand down? Or at the end, spoiler, when he, when they, Charlie shoots Christian Bale, it seems like at any point in time he could have said, hold your fire. Don't shoot the guy. Well, he sort of does, but then Prince shoots him a few more times. But he could have, at any time before that, he could have said that. Yeah. At yeah, any yeah. point, he could have been like, I've changed my mind. Hey, guys, I mean, I know this doesn't make a good movie, but I'm just saying, realistically and logically, he could have just said, hey, I want this guy to live. I'm getting on this train. You guys just chill back, hang back for a bit. I'll meet you guys up. You just come over to Yuma Prison. We'll have a couple of beers. It'll be cool. But I want everybody to, this is what I want to happen, as opposed to what actually does happen, where they kind of have this gunfight where he could have easily gotten killed at any point. Mm-hmm. Either of them could have easily gotten killed at any point. And it just it was kind of ridiculous. It was almost like they wanted to play a laser tag, but with real guns. And especially when they enticed the townspeople to, with a bounty, you know, like, all right, every, you know, 40 or 50 guys, whoever kills them gets $200 a man or whatever the number was. Uh, and then Charlie Prince and his gang start shooting the townspeople to protect Wade. Yeah. But then they're also shooting at Bale. Yeah. And Wade's right there. In fact, yeah. Wade's ahead of him, like leading the way through the, like he's a uh, blocker in football. Right. And dragging him along, it just it it got like bizarre world for me at that point. It got a little too a little too fantastical. Me too, Doug. Yeah, yeah. I I I'll admit that one weakness in the movie is they don't make Wade's in I guess his uh his his incentives to helping out Dan Evans' character or uh, Christian Bale's character Dan Evans particularly clear. 
it seems as though, because Dan says at the end of him, he gives him the true story of, of how he lost his foot, that it was shot off uh, in, while in retreat by a regiment, um, like a fellow regiment soldier. And he says to him, is that the kind of story you would tell your, your boy? Is that the kind of story you want to go home and tell your son? Because it's inglorious. I mean, you know, I lost my foot. Oh, yeah, I was, I was shot off by, by one of my bunk mates or something like that. And we weren't even we weren't even close to the fighting. We were just you know we were ordered in retreat, and some guy was being an idiot. Um, yeah, it's it's really and and Wade looks at him and it's like okay, you know, it seems as though he was doing it in order to give the son the impression that his father was a hero greater than he actually was. And since it wouldn't be that difficult for him to escape from Yuma prison, it was sort of like ah, you know, yeah, sure, I'll let you, I'll let it look like you're beating me up just so that your son thinks you're actually a decent fighter, right? Yeah. But then at the same time, his father did actually fight off about half a dozen or so people trying to kill him. He, uh, Dan Evans ended up killing about probably seven or eight men while dragging Ben Wade to the train. So it's not as though he was completely incompetent. He is actually a very good shot. And aside from his leg slowing him up a bit, he was capable of, of uh, making it all the way. It's just he probably couldn't fight Ben Wade in a, hand, in a, you know, a straight fist fight. Maybe Ben Wade was tougher in a fist fight, but other than that, Dan was actually reasonably competent on his own. Yeah, you bring up one point that, um, now that you mention it, I wish the movie had done that it didn't do, in that they do address that he has lost his foot and his leg, and that does feature into the plot and the reasoning and the motivations behind the character. But you're right, they, they never, you never see Christian Bale suffer because of the loss of the leg. It's never an impediment, it's never a, a handicap. Um, even when he's running around on rooftops and jumping across buildings, he seems to do just as fine as Crow does. And it would have been nice to see that, I don't know, the, the, the foot, the leg somehow come into play in that. Like maybe take a bullet. Yeah, yeah. maybe take a bullet, or maybe he's not able to jump across a building, and then he falls, and maybe Crow has to pick him up, pull him up off the, from falling or something. I mean, so I don't you're know. saying if, if you're already in unicorn land, why, why not go full, full unicorn? Sure. Yeah, they do actually seem to do that twice where uh, at the beginning, you know, he he's like walking around using his his sharps rifle as a as like a cane to help him get around without his foot. And then he has to like hobble. He has to like rush to sh- shove on his his foot in order to get out there and stop Hollander's men from burning the barn. And he can't. And because of that, he you know, takes him an extra 30 seconds to shoot these guys. And so and he does actually get shot in the fake prosthetic foot. There's a hole at the end, but you know that was like the only time he, he got shot aside from the very end is, is this hole, this smoking hole in his in his boot, his prosthetic boot, which they they kind of note, hey, that's <laughs> whoops. But yeah, no, it, it it doesn't seem to be a huge impediment. It's it's sort of like um, it's like an inconvenience or something like that, or you know, it it's like uh, oh, you know, I I got to put on my glasses before I shoot you or something because my vision's not particularly good. Yeah, you know, I want to take us back to your uh, your narrative overall of Ben Wade being left at the train station when he was a child, and maybe that was part of his motivation for wanting to help Dan Evans look like the hero to his son because he knew it was important to Evans. Like what I was saying earlier, Evans started out seeking justice within the Monopoly justice system, as it were, but then he becomes more inclined to try to like show to show his son that he actually is capable and worthwhile, and, and that's kind of where Wade and him can sort of come together and, and help each other. Yeah. That does seem to be perhaps a motivation that he wants to, he wants the son to have an opinion of his father that he wouldn't normally have had just because his own father wasn't there. So, Daniel, uh, a side note, uh, one thing I have in my notes, when they're kind of getting to know each other on the trail, uh, Russell Crowe 
this is after the dinner. He talks about Bale's wife and how Bale isn't quite providing for her and all that sort of thing that Doug was talking about earlier. Bale threatens to kill him if he keeps talking about her. Mm-hmm. Which I am perfectly okay with. Okay, good. Because that's, that's what I was my question. I wanted to know where everybody stands on threatening a man with death to defend his wife's honor. Go. <laughs> Douglas, you got an opinion. Go. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I am generally pretty unfriendly to talking poorly about uh, another man's wife, especially when it's you know sort of an unprovoked situation. Um, you want to have some meaningful banter. You have to criticize opinions. Okay, that's that's fine. But you know, just saying like, I think your wife would prefer me to you. You're you're a loser. I'm awesome. Well, that's just intentionally offensive, and I probably wouldn't you know advocate killing somebody. But you know, maybe in some nuance of the nap and of the uh, the non-aggression principle. I certainly believe in a good slap across the face on occasion. Society has become just a little too nice. We need to we need to start need to start slapping each other around on occasion. Okay, okay. So you're 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 okay with a good slap, but what about hey, I'm going to murder you if you keep talking about her? Because that's what happens in the movie. Yeah, no, I I think that's that's taking it a step too far aside from a little playful exaggeration. Okay. Uh, but I I actually yeah, technically speaking, I suppose it's a violation of the nap to. Uh, to slap somebody for talking bad about your wife, but maybe a necessary violation. Well, it's certainly a matter of degree. It is. I mean, it's it's one of those things where, I mean, almost every guy at some point in his life gets into a fight because he was being a jerk and he gets his butt whooped. And suddenly it's like, oh yeah, you know, maybe it's not so good that I talk poorly about somebody's wife or mother or girlfriend. And, you know, there's actually, hey, you know what? Good time to learn some manners, I suppose. But, um, you know, at the same time, manners, are, manners aren't technically a legal issue. Um, <laughs> so... You guys being the thin libertarians you are, you know, I suppose that, uh, you know, manners, manners not being a necessary portion of society. You know. No, no positive obligations, but there exactly. are consequences to actions and free association. So if you're an asshole, Doug, Doug. <laughs> uh, I am, I'm an asshole, you. but that's, you know, I'm willing to take one on the chin on occasion. Yeah, there you go. So I have a bit of a nuanced approach to this. I would say that. Anytime you're saying something like that along the lines of about somebody else's mother or their wife, that those are fighting words. Right. They're not intended to make a statement of fact about someone else. They're intended to elicit an emotional and visceral response to escalate the situation. So I think that by saying that Ben Wade was inviting an escalation. Okay. Where do you fall along the lines of words only have the power that we give them? I think that there is a lot of truth to that. Okay, but I think that if it's a fine line between words or violence, I think microaggressions, words can elicit (laughs) violence. You can upset somebody to the point where they do want to hit you. Uh, So then incitement is a thing and you can be prosecuted for incitement. Well, in today's world or in I know in in today's world, you can. Yeah, incitement's a riot. I mean, that's a that's a thing. I mean, don't we have self-ownership, though? I mean, no matter what you say, if I if you're just sitting there talking. Right. But we go back to the old hitman argument. If I hire somebody to to be a hitman, is it the hitman's decision because right. he owns himself, or right. am I complicit in some way because I offered him money as an enticement to do it? Right. I mean, he's an extension of me. He's performing an act I have requested. I've hired him to do. But at the same time, he's not under any obligation other than contract. Contract. <laughs> but the contract is va- invalid if it involves a third party doing harm to a third party. Yeah. See, we're going to get down in the weeds here, Doug. I don't know. I'm, the way I kind of view it is that, you know, you, you punch a guy, you punch a guy across the jaw, you know, unless you've broken his jaw or, you know, killed him or severely hurt him, 
you know what, you got punched across the jaw for being a jerk. Well, yeah, that's technically a violation of the non-aggression principle, but it's not a real big violation in the same way that I would allow women the right where a guy says a fairly degrading or sexually suggestive comment to her that she has the freedom to slap him across the face for it. Most societies throughout history have said, yeah, that's that's fair game because you deserved it and you're a guy. So what? Don't hit her back because, frankly, you were being a pig and you deserved it. Um, All right. So let me ask you this, Doug. So you're saying that the punch or the slap in response to saying something like this that is um, emotionally disturbing, the feels, is a way to teach the person who said the thing that, hey, don't say that anymore. And if a guy gets you know, punched in the face for being an asshole, then maybe he'll be less likely to be an asshole. And that makes a certain amount of sense. But then I bring it to present day and we've got the Antifa preemptively naming anyone who's not a commie, a Nazi, and punching them with the intention, I guess, of making them not be a Nazi, like punching the Nazi out of them. Right. Or something. Yeah. And if anything, it's just going to make them hold faster and harder to their beliefs. Like somebody who is disagreeing with me is now assaulting me. Therefore, I am correct in my assessment that they are terrible people. So if anything, they might double down. I admit that's a possibility. I'd say one of the my response to that would be that one of the one of the reasons why historically it was acceptable for a woman to slap a man who made a derogatory or sexually suggestive comment was because society had already as a whole condemned that sort of behavior. So in a sense, she was just reminding him of his his moral duties in that society as a man to her. And, and I technically recognize that it's a violation of the NAP. It's just not a violation of the NAP that if you brought before me as a juror in a court that I would judge very harshly and sort of say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bring, bring, bring me, bring me a murder or bring me an armed robbery or bring me a, you know, a mugging or something like that. You know, some woman slapping a guy across the face because he said, Hey, sweet cheeks, nice ass. I'd slap him too, dude. You get the hell out of here. You know, <laughs> In line with what we were just talking about, I mean, Crow does murder a man with, he murders the Pinkerton guy for talking bad about his mother, which is kind of strange because on the one hand, for all the reasons we've just been talking about, probably shouldn't insult the man's mother, but he didn't really know his mother. She abandoned him at a train station when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, is it just he wanted to murder him anyway, or do you really think it was really offended him that he would dare insult this woman that abandoned him. You know, it is kind of a tough situation because there was a mutual respect for each other in the um, several robberies that had occurred. Like Crow knew who he was and they knew each other and they shot him in the gut during the initial robbery. But, you know, just a flesh wound, right? Not not to kill him, just to cause some pain. Just as an aside, he recovered incredibly quickly. Yeah, by the way. <laughs> All of a sudden he was good to go. I've been visiting before. the vet. Yeah, yeah. If you see uh, Reservoir Dogs or I think some other movies, they talk about how a gut shot is like one of the most painful ways yeah. to go because if it's not treated, you're going to bleed out. It be awfully painful the entire way. It's like an excruciating way to kill somebody. Yeah, even the, the vet came along with them, I guess, for that reason to like kind of make sure he was okay. Because I, I couldn't understand any other reason why the vet was coming. Why the Alan Tudyk guy? Yeah, why was he there other than for that? Like the slight comedy relief? Yeah, yeah well, and, and you know, Alan Tudyk is a great actor, so they didn't want to underuse him. Oh, he is. He's great. Don't get me wrong. Not so much in this movie, but in other movies. Yeah, I do like the part where he, he it dawns on uh, Peter Fonda that it's Peter Fonda who gets the bullet taken out. Yeah. He says, uh, are you, what the hell kind of doctor are you? And Tudyk's like, hey, it's nice when the patient can finally talk back. Right. Because he realizes he's a vet. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess they took him along as like a medic and, and they needed more men. It always seemed to be like they were sizing up the gang, Wade's gang versus whatever they could cobble together. They always felt like they were outgunned and outnumbered and out 
skilled. Yeah. And they wanted more and more numbers, right? But get back to what you were originally saying before I interrupted you. Uh, take me back there. What was it? Uh, we were talking about Pro killing the Pinkerton woman, or the guy, Pinkerton guy, because oh, of right, the right. woman content. Because they did have a mutual respect for each other, but also it was like a high stakes, like their relationship was, I'm going to rob and you're going to defend and we might kill each other in the process. Right. So there was already like, right. it, it's on the table that we could kill each other. Mm-hmm. And then Wade is in the custody and seemingly can get out of it whenever he wants or murder any of them whenever he wants. Uh, but it was just that one last thing that just pushed him over the edge. Like, you talk shit about my mom. We were already going to kill each other anyway, so I'm just going to do the job now. Right. Like I think we're overthinking this here, you know, like it could just be that that Ben Wade was looking for any excuse to, like, kill these guys so he could escape. You know, I mean, like he's trying to piss off Dan Evans by insulting his wife so that he can op- get a get a get an opening to kill him. Kevin, Kevin Durant's character, he was waiting until the guy finally everybody got sick of listening to this guy sing all night. So he, so he could stab him in the throat with a fork, you know, and right. like so he's, he's just picking them off one by one. That is true. He didn't need a reason. He didn't need a reason. But I. Just thought it was interesting because that's what we were discussing. You know, I kind of get the idea that Wade maybe was so skilled that he wanted to present himself a challenge, like a personal challenge, like how can I make this situation as difficult as possible and then still get out of it, still overcome it? Because, he, like I said, he'd been to the prison before twice and he was able to escape. It seemed like he could have escaped at any point during the yeah, it almost seemed like he was like a bored guy who was like interested in, oh, let's just see what happens. There was no challenge in it. And it really was a power dynamic between him and his captors. And that it seemed like, yeah, they, they got this chained tiger, but really this tiger could murder them at any chance, any time. Right. And it reminds me of that movie, The 13 Assassins, that we just watched the other day, which we might do a show on. But basically a guy who's close to the Shogun is this really awful, awful person who rapes people, dismembers them. Kills, kills people, uh, but because he's bored. Yeah. And he also runs into traps and into danger that's obviously a trap. And he's like, oh, I just want to see what happens. I want to have some excitement in my life. Right. And so maybe Wade has a bit of that streak in him. Like he's already accomplished robbing the stagecoach 32 times and he's already rich and he's already. Right. Yeah. He had nothing to prove. They say here that um, he's stolen $440,000 out of 22 robberies. In eighteen eighties, like they talk about later on, that that Christian Bale's character was going to get a thousand dollars, and that would be like crazy pants rich. <laughs> so if he's got four hundred forty grand divided up among his little gang of like ten guys, you know he's like beyond rich, and there's no reason for them to do any of this stuff. So yeah, he's like this superhero character that is just bored, wants to see things happen that he's never experienced before. Yeah, it's like Doctor Manhattan in Watchmen. Yeah, he's like I'm bored of this planet. I'm bored of humanity are bored of just being here so i'm going to go to mars or whatever right which ties back to a comment you had made earlier maybe it was pre-show doug where uh, a forced forcing people to be good is a false being good like it's not a virtue to be forced to be good and that was a point we made in that episode i think it was 34 where manhattan was a threat against anyone who was willing to escalate to a nuclear war because they would get annihilated and so it, it sort of like was this um not mutually assured destruction, but a unilaterally assured destruction. Like if you step out of line, that hammer's going to come down on you. Right. So you're not being good for goodness sake. You're getting good because you're being threatened to be good. Right. Yeah. I don't know. The only thing I have to say about uh, Dr. Manhattan is when you see him in the movie, by the size of his dick, the only thing he's a threat to is Sally Jupiter's womb. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's a certain threat to her cervix. I can tell you that. <laughs> 
And then he, he can, like, double-team her and triple-team her. I mean. Yeah, we're, we're going places that even this podcast can't really go. But, you know, it's like, you see this thing, like, hanging out in the middle of the movie the whole time, you know? It's like a Nalgene bottle. No wonder she's stuck around for so long. Right. Yeah, it's super distant, and he never lets me in emotionally, but damn. Exactly. There was another... Um, Worst to be good scenario that we were talking about about another movie. Do you remember what that was? Was it mm-hmm. a, a one that we did a show on recently? It comes up quite a bit. You know, we oh, Death Star, Rogue One. Yeah, the Death Star is a threat to anyone who's going to step out of line. So it's this assured destruction of your entire planet or your entire geographic area with the last wave. And so you better be good because if you step out of line, we're going to shoot you down with the with the Death Stars. Mm. Yeah, I remember I likened it to. Um, to Dr. Manhattan. Like, there's a certain level of equivalency between Manhattan and the Death Star. Okay. And well, the destructive capacity. And in bringing it back into the real world, um, uh, you know, they say that, you know, giving to charity or giving to the help the poor is a virtue. But when government does it, does it at gunpoint, then it's no longer a virtue. Yeah, you're no longer the moral actor, so you don't get the credit. Right. Yeah, well, and then, then, the means- then even bringing it back to libertarianism, lately we've had a few offshoots of anarcho-capitalists who no longer seem to be anarcho-capitalists because they've been saying, well, since we know that the communists are going to come kill us, maybe we should be preemptive about it and go get them first. And then we get these guys talking about, you know, how uh, Augusto Pinochet is this awesome guy because he threw commies out of helicopters. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, it starts becoming a, I'll admit the preemption, the preemption to an immediate threat starts becoming a real problem. Unless it's actually an immediate threat to you, you start becoming a, you, you start becoming the threat. Right. Yeah, it's the Antifa thing. It's Bush doctrine. It's you can justify any actions by claiming that you felt threatened or or feels. Right. Yeah, I feel threatened, so I'm going to send some drone bombs. Yeah. And what you know, you end up making a whole bunch of enemies that actually do threaten you later on. And look, you're so justified in your actions. Yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. It's a circle. Yeah. I mean, we we really do have to wait for there to be an immediate threat before we can really actually do something otherwise you know we're 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 not really we're not really solving any problems we're just um we're cre- well it, as you say not just creating new ones but ultimately we're creating colla- we're creating new collateral damage um every time you have a a victim of a crime there's going to be there has to be some sort of collateral damage even if it's just the world no longer has that person to be a productive worker anymore the kids don't have a father the you know whoever right so, yeah and it's an ends justify the means argument which I don't buy that at all. I think that the means color the ends. Dan? Evil means, evil purposes, evil results. All right, good for you. Okay, let's get back to the movie. Let's talk about this one. I've got a couple more scenes to talk about, or at least instances. Um, at one point, Bale's group catches up to the escaping crow. After the Apache attack, crow escapes with the horses, and he comes upon a mining group, and he's captured. And then Bale's group catches up, and they come upon the scene, and Crow is being tortured. He's being electrocuted. And the doctor takes offense at this, and he says, well, that's immoral, what you're doing. And Luke Wilson's character says, immoral ain't got a damn thing to do with it. And I was curious as to your takes. I mean, the leader of the minor guys had a brother that had been killed by Crow six years prior or something like that. Mm-hmm. Do you think he was justified in electrocuting Crow at that point? Well, I think Crow made the point that the brother was a scumbag who was doing all sorts of nasty shit as well. So he's a card sharp. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Okay. He was a lying, lying card sharp. And that's why he killed him. Okay. 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't think that there's really a, a justification for torture. You're not. Well, he wanted justice. Right. But that's not going to bring his brother, brother back. It's not going to. I mean, maybe it gives him a psychic satisfaction because he's a bit of a BDSM type guy. <laughs> <laughs> so who isn't these days? <laughs> Why wouldn't you be? <laughs> but yeah, I felt it was inappropriate to be shocking him in the nipples or wherever his useless boobs. Yeah. Okay. So you don't fall along the lines of this is a man who was wronged and he wants justice against this guy. And this is how he's going to get it. This is how he finds justice. Mm. Yeah, but he didn't. Yeah. But we have no, I mean, one of the problems is we don't really have proof of it either. It's when we say, well, he, this guy killed my brother. Wade says in return. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure your brother was just a a card shark. It, it seemed as though the whole conversation they were, it was just stated and, and both are, they're, they're unreliable narrators. So when you're dealing with that, well, would it be a reasonable proof of justice if for some reason we're just this this guy this guy killed my mom, you know, well, let's actually confirm your mom's dead first, you know, like uh we have to have some reasonable stance at which justice exists. We can't just say, Oh, well, you know, I make a claim, therefore, because I've made a claim, it has to be, you know, satisfied. No, the claim has to be proven and unsatisfied, right? And then even Rothbard said, you know, Rothbard would have argued, well, you know, technically they need to prove me guilty and then I have the chance to come in to a courtroom and prove my, you know, my innocence first. Like, otherwise it's a, it's a violation. Like, why should I even come to court unless for some reason you actually have uh, something legitimate against me to begin with? And who's just because I come to court, you know, it's, you're already, you're already violating my time and my space and my property to have me come to court if you haven't proven something against me. But nonetheless, proof is still required and we don't have any proof here. As it comes to torture, I, Basically, I oppose it, one, because it doesn't work, two, because, well, why not just, you know, why not just kill him, right? It's, uh, I, I don't understand the reason to, the moral reason or the, I don't, I don't understand a moral reason why you would want to torture somebody before killing them if the eventual goal is just to kill them. You know, oh, well, I want them to suffer more pain. Well, unless you can show that uh, Ben Wade tortured the guy and then killed him, it's not really justice to torture somebody back and then kill them. Yeah, and, and all of this is we're sort of, making predictions and assumptions based on a very nebulous concept. I think that it would be hoove us to um, maybe read chaos theory or some other, well, it sounds like you read some Rothbard regarding this. I, I need to look into that a little bit, like conception of justice in a private property society, things like that. But all of it's going to be kind of guesswork until we're actually in a position like that. All I can say is that I know that the current system is not satisfactory. It's a monopoly. It's therefore inefficient it's costly. It has a lot of violence involved in funding it and in its uh, application. And so just because we don't know how something might be solved without this monopoly form of violence doesn't mean that, therefore, that monopoly system is justified. Okay. I think that's fair. Um, I would like to get your guys' take on what happens directly after that, though. So we've got these two groups that are in conflict. We've got Christian Bale's group who want to take Crow and get him to this train. And we got these minor guys who Crow has murdered the brother of, of this main leader guy who want to keep him to torture him, to torture him and get their own justice or whatever. What happens is Bale's group kind of like violently assault and murder them and then escape with Crow. Is that how you saw what happened? Cause it kind of happens kind of fast and there's a lot of swinging and violence and shooting and whatnot. And I didn't really, quite check to see who swings first or whatever, or if even that matters. Well, I think that we break it down to sort of a contractual level or a homesteading level. Like they had Crow, they lost Crow, they had right claim to Crow. 
these other guys were torturing Crow and not willing to give them back when requested. Yeah. And so they were, I guess, authorized to exact some kind of violence to get their property back, if we're going to call Crow property. Oh. But they had, like, title to him. You know, he was their prisoner. He was their custody that he was in. In the framework of... They claimed that. Yeah. But how did the minor guys know that? As far as they know, Crow just showed up in their camp and they grabbed him, right? Yeah, but they didn't dispute it either. That's you true. Know, it seemed straightforward to them. Although, again, we're coming back to that problem of proof. Yeah. I mean, my biggest problem with that whole scene is the fact that in the mayhem they caused, they could have seriously injured nonviolent and innocent parties, like you know, mostly the Chinese workers. Sure. Um, and imagine blown up the tunnel would have uh, yeah. done a fair amount of harm yeah. and all the shooting. Yeah, I mean, you could have conceivably killed a lot of innocent people in order to, what, save, you know, this one criminal who's going to the block anyways, you know, or, or perhaps is, you know, to save your own life. We had that same issue with the Charlottesville where that guy, like, drove into a crowd while, you know, he's claiming... Oh well, you know, people were, were like beating my car with baseball bats, and I feared for my life, and so I drove off into a crowd at high speed in order to escape. And, I mean, I'm not sure if that's even true. That's what's being claimed. Obviously, the the original claim was that the guy was maliciously trying to kill people. Well, yeah, you know, the threat to your life is certainly certainly cause for you to take drastic action, but against the people that are actively harming you, not not just driving off into a you know a crowd of people who you don't even know who's in there. Yeah, and there's something to be said about situational awareness. I mean, if you know there's some kind of a riot or big rally thing, like why are you driving your car down there unless you are willing to kind of be involved, you know? Mm. Seems like something you'd avoid. Yeah, I don't know any of the particulars about any of that stuff, so I clearly can't comment. I don't know. It seems like a thing that you wouldn't even want to drive down there anyway just for traffic considerations. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Where are you trying to go? You don't want to be stuck there. Right. So uh, I imagine we're pretty close to the end of this, so we can start maybe winding this down. And Doug, just here where we at the end we do a rating of black and gold or black and red for the movie. Yeah, I know. I, I yeah, I got it. Awesome. Um, okay, so at the end, there's a scene where Crow offers to bribe Bale for a thousand dollars cash, which is actually what Bale later on when he changes the contract with Butterfield, he changes it to $1,000 cash plus getting the, the water restored back to his ranch and Butterfield agrees to all those terms. Um, it seems like Crow doesn't necessarily, I mean, uh, Bale turns him down because he, he claims that he wouldn't be able to explain the money. Like, what would I do if I had all this $1,000? I mean, I wouldn't even be able to explain how I got it. But then he goes around and changes it with Butterfield and gets $1,000 from Butterfield. So, uh, does that seem any weird to you guys at all? Like, is it like an honored, honorable thing still? Is he, is he so intent on being this hero to his son, but then accepting the money from this crook guy wouldn't turn him into a hero, but then he changes the former agreement with Butterfield to $1,000. It used to be 200 now it's 1000 mm-hmm. But the, the terms of the contract did kind of change, sort of. He can rene- renegotiate. I mean, yeah, and Butterfield agreed to it. Right. Yeah, it did seem a little bit weird, and I think there was a point where maybe the Bale character decided, hey, I'm not going to make it through this. Yeah. And because I want to prove to my son that I am capable, I'm going to accomplish this task of getting Wade to the train, mm-hmm. to the 310 train, so I can't take the money from Wade to let him go, because then I don't get the brownie points with the son. But if he renegotiates with Butterfield and says, all right, when I die, give my family the money, then he gets to look like the hero and get the money. All right, I, I, I don't have a whole lot else. If, uh, Doug, you got some more stuff? Yeah, no, I was just, um, 
It is it is interesting. And my wife actually does not like this movie for this reason. She doesn't like the fact that he did not take a pragmatic approach, the pragmatic approach being taking a thousand dollar bribe, walking away much earlier, doing what was whatever was necessary for the benefit for the direct fiduciary benefit of a family, as opposed to trying to show his son um you know, a stand-up moral case for doing what he thought was right at all times and accepting the consequences, even if they meant death. You know, so my, and my wife, my wife doesn't like the movie. And I think, I mean, there's a major difference between men and women is that women in a sense have to be very pragmatic in life because they're, I mean, they're obviously physically weaker and, and a variety of circumstances have prevented them from ne- necessarily being as economically viable as men are. You know, when they complain about the wage gap, what you mean is, oh, because, you know, women are the ones who get pregnant and so are more likely to spend five or six years out of the workforce during their prime earning and career building years. Yeah, I mean, no, you know, what else would you expect? Um, so in a sense, women, women are kind of forced to be pragmatic with their decisions because, you know, if they're not, they're the ones who are, you know, suffering major consequences for it. Whereas guys, you know, we tend to be a little more abstract. I mean, our brains are or organized to be more abstract. We're a little more likely to want to live by a like a, a code or a duty or whatever. It's why guys are more likely to join the military, and women are much more relational in nature. They're more likely to identify themselves by their relationships as opposed to by their professions. Uh, going back to whatever pop psychology relationship manual you want to go to. Doug, just to be clear, you don't work for Google, and you're not about to be fired from Google. No, I, I don't work. I don't work for Google. You know, I mean, what can I say? A bunch of commies, right? But no, I. Yeah, I mean, that's unfortunate. I mean, pointing out differences between men and women is a fireable offense. I just hope you know that. Yeah, no, I, I understand. As long as I'm not getting fired from here, I suppose I don't really care. And, you know, thankfully, I've got enough of my own money that if nobody ever hires me, I don't really feel like, uh, you know, I'm not going to be out on the street if nobody ever hires me, although I hope they do. All right, well, well said. Well, hey, why don't we get to the point where we talk about uh, what is your rating of the movie? It sounds like your wife would have given it a black and red, but what about you, Doug? Oh man, I, I uh, she probably give it a black and blue, I'd say, as opposed to a black and red. But yeah, I give it a I give it a golden black. First of all, they pay for everything in silver, right? It's hardback money. There is no central bank, which is wonderful. There are no taxes, right? Uh, people have the right to make as much money or as little as they as they want or can. I mean, it's basically you know this is a, this is a libertarian paradise. We should all just go back to the 1870s. All right, Robert, what do you got for me? Yeah, so this movie is. Definitely enjoyable. Um, I give it a black and gold. I wish it was a little bit more explained. I mean, we had to inference a fair number of things, but I mean, you're talking about a movie that's trying to tell a story. They're not going to get into the details and minutia of actual contracts and that sorts of things. So um, I did appreciate the the hard money aspect um, pre-central bank. That's absolutely awesome. And I did appreciate the fact that you got a, you got a male hero who is under extreme pressure and is going to extraordinary lengths to provide for his family. And I don't, like we talked about earlier in the show, um, the modern male family head is just this buffoon who is just incompetent. And the wife is just uh, putting up with his dumb ass while she's just the most competent person ever. And everybody's just making fun of him the whole time while he's busting his ass to provide for their livelihood all the time. So yeah, I, a movie that can kind of celebrate and champion the extreme lengths that men go to to provide for their families is uh, black and gold for me, baby. All right. Well, I hate to be the Debbie Downer in this situation, but Tommy, I thought this movie when it first came out, not theaters, but, you know, first to DVD, 
almost 10 years ago now, and I think I liked it better then than I do now. Mm. And it's mostly because the back half of it just becomes a bit too cartoonish for me. It's so unbelievable to me that Crow is going to be dragging Bale along to make it through this obstacle course to get to the train. Uh, meanwhile, all these people are shooting at them, and it becomes this laser tag thing, and I just I couldn't suspend the disbelief any further. To your point earlier, Robert, he could have stopped them at any point and said, hey, you know, I'm just going to go to the train, guys. <laughs> no need to try to kill this guy. I actually like him. Uh, you but, triggered? You triggered? You salty? Yeah. But then, of course, it's not a movie, so I guess you kind of have to. I mean, that's the thing. When, when people are creating these movies and these stories, it's like an imperfect thing, and, and you sort of have to craft it to fit within a narrative that you're telling it maybe goes outside of the realm of possibility or, or even making a lot of sense. Right. To be able to still t- tell a story. Otherwise, you know, the movie's 10 minutes long and you're done. Right, right. So, final rating. I'm going with black and red, baby. Oh, red. no. Man, that's, that's, some, that's some bullshit. <laughs> uh, no disrespect to either of you fine gentlemen, uh, if I can assume your genders. But, uh, yeah, I just... Yeah, and demigendered, dude. Yeah, demigendered. But yeah, that, that's kind of where I where I stand on it, um, and I won't be I won't be like bullied into it. <laughs> no peer pressure. Yeah, right. So, Doug, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, why don't you? We'll give you the floor for a minute or two here, and you can just talk about where people can find uh, things you're working on, and maybe get in touch with you if, if that's something that you would uh, be okay with. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I mean, I, I suppose the uh, place where I blog is actually uh, at a uh, a website called HQATL, so that's Headquarters Atlanta. And I'll describe what my original vision was for that, and you can call me a sexist misogynist all you want, and I'm okay with it because I am. But, um, yeah, I, I write there for a uh, – it's a it's a blog that's meant to encourage young men to try to be better versions of themselves. Um, I don't really subscribe to the men's right activist thing. I'm, I'm really not impressed by that at all. At the same time, I do uh, sort of talk rather uh, vitriolically of feminism and what I think it's kind of done to society, much in the vein of what we've been talking about here. In fact, I have a, uh, an article called The Sitcom Dad on that website that, that really talks about this whole thing. I, don't, I haven't been blogging there as much recently I've, since my dad passed away because I've just been too busy. But if, they wanna, if anybody wants to read more articles and a more more culturally oriented than what I write at um, at actual anarchy under the professional asshole. Uh, they would do it at hqatl.com. Um, and the original idea for this is a friend and I really wanted to create a like sort of a male centric retreat uh, here in Georgia. And originally we wanted it to be like a, a hotel type thing, like a like a country getaway where we'd have obstacle courses and you can shoot and have paintball and. We were even going to have like a driving track and possibly a shooting range and just all, all male activities that you could have there with a bar, cigar bars, stuff like that. So but it'd be we, like the, the uh, men going their own way, tough mutter, 310 Yuma, to Yuma obstacle course? Yeah, except, I, except probably not the, uh, the, the men going their own way thing because we definitely wanted to cater to like corporate retreats or, you know, fathers bringing their sons. I, I'm not opposed to bringing in single guys, but there are plenty of, there are plenty of spas, you know, where my wife goes, you know, the spa all the time, or, you know, she loves going to tea houses. And there's so much of that for women, but there's not very much of it for guys. And we're, we're relegated either to, if we're lucky enough, we can have a little man cave or something where we can get the guys together and watch football and drink some beer, or maybe we can go to the sports bar, but there's no, 
dedicated place for this. And we, we had come up with a bunch of ideas. We eventually turned it into the idea of more of a city club for men where you can get your professional business work done. Um, and we were going to have a restaurant that had like the Bruce Wayne menu and the John Wayne menu. And, you know, the Bruce Wayne menu was it's manly food, but it's healthy. And then the Bruce Wayne menu was, you know, here's a country fried steak the size of your chest. Eat up, buddy. You know, oh, the John Wayne menu. Yeah. The Duke. Yeah. Um, you know, we were going to have like a boxing gym and, you know, a cigar bar and a you know restaurant. We wanted to have like a dedicated movie theater where we were just going to show manly movies all the time. Um, Chuck Norris on repeat. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, we're still hoping to develop this, but I wanted to sort of develop a backlog of, of writing and newsletters and things like that we could eventually send out. But, you know, as I started getting involved in um, getting my CPA, getting my master's of accounting, it's just sort of trailed off because I'm getting busier and busier and it's getting harder and harder to find time to sit down and, you know, actually talk about something that I'm not repeating myself a hundred times. Like how many blog posts can I have about, you know, how sitcom dads are, you know, not, not representative of reality. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Daniel, before we wrap things up, I just want to mention that we were recently on the Liberty Weekly podcast talking about Candles in the Dark with Larkin Rose. LibertyWeekly.net slash 26. Thank you for doing that. That was fun. And it should be a, a pretty enlightening huh, ah. uh, little episode there. Those guys are great. They were uh, guests of ours for the Rogue One episode, and uh, we hope to have them back sometime. Yeah, and there's still one more event for Candles in the Dark. If you're in the Denver area, I want to say what is in about like a couple weeks. Denver? Yeah, it's coming up soon, and I'm sure Larkin's really commendating. I mean, at our event, we had people come from as far as Baltimore, Maryland, coming all the way over to Washington State. We had people from Alaska, Arizona, all over Alberta, all came to check out this event. So, well worth it, I think. Yeah, so you can find more information on that at LarkinRose.com, and we'll post a link down below in our show notes page as well. And you can find this episode at ActualAnarchy.com slash 37. And if you like the work that we do, you want to support us in any way, click on any of the Amazon links or check out our tip jar page at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. Uh, you can find ways to support us on Patreon and you can get behind the scenes where you can get before uh, the episode where we're bantering with guests. And when we go to overdrive and turn frogs gay with Kathleen Turner overdrive, Alex Jones style, which we might head into right after these messages. Yeah. These messages that you just invented. These messages uh, thanks for joining us, audience. Appreciate it. Uh, have a good night from me, and we Likewise. might get some overdrive. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do